Let us pray. O gracious God, ever draw near to us that we would know that you are our Father, that in Christ you have adopted us, that in Christ you have made us heirs alongside him of all that he inherits from you. And he inherits the whole world, and he has received from you the fullness of eternal life, and that that is then through him poured upon us. And so grant us to rejoice, grant us to praise, grant us to sit in silent adoration at the joyful mystery that is the Incarnation. We ask this through that very one, Jesus Christ, who is incarnate for our sake. Amen. So this morning I'm going to do something a little different. This morning I, uh, over the past year now, I've been looking over this article. An article that said, let St. John Chrysostom preach your Christmas sermon the Sunday after Christmas. And I've read it and read it and read it and thought about it. And so I decided I'm going to give it a shot today. I'm going to borrow St. John Chrysostom's nativity sermon and add a little commentary as I go along. And use that to remind us of the joyfulness of our salvation. That the church fathers reveled in the incarnation. They reveled in the reality that God came to earth. And so this Christmas sermon, this nativity sermon from John Chrysostom, from St. John Chrysostom, is one of the first Christmas sermons we actually have record of. Now for those who don't know, St. John Chrysostom was the patriarch of Constantinople from 397 until his death while in exile in 406. He riled a lot of feathers during his time as the patriarch, such that he was sent into exile on account of his speaking out against the excesses of authority, against the abuse of authority of both the emperor and the church. So he really stepped on a lot of toes during his time of ministry. In fact, he spoke so well and spoke so much that he was one of the most eloquent speakers in the early church. That's why he is called Chrysostom, the golden mouth. He was so good at speaking that they literally nicknamed him the golden mouth, the golden tongue, the one who could speak, and it was like gold flowing forth. It was so beautiful and so amazing. And so this Christmas sermon that I'm using from St. John Chrysostom, it was originally preached, we think, in probably around 386 A.D., at the beginning of his public ministry. He preached it in Antioch, where he started his ministry. And so as we go along, as I said, I'm going to include some of my thoughts, and I will carefully note the changes from Chrysostom to myself, so that you know when it is the elegant words of the golden mouth speaking. And St. John Chrysostom begins, Behold, a new and wondrous mystery. My ears resound to the shepherd's song, piping no soft melody, but chanting fully forth a heavenly hymn. The angels sing, the archangels blend their voice in harmony. The cherubim hymn their joyful praise. The seraphim exalt his glory. And all join to praise this holy feast, beholding the Godhead here on earth and man in heaven. He who is above now for our redemption dwells here below. And he that was lowly 
is that by divine mercy raised. As you can hear, Chrysostom sets forth right here at the forefront the entire purpose of the incarnation right there in that last sentence. He who is above now for our redemption dwells here below. And he that was lowly is by divine grace, divine mercy raised. Who are the lowly ones that he speaks of here? It is all who hear this sermon. It is all who read his words, whether it was 1,700 years ago, 1,600 years ago, or today. We are those lowly ones that by divine mercy are lifted, are raised, are brought up. We're the ones to whom the Son of God condescends. And in that condescension, he has taken on our flesh. In that condescension, he becomes man. And through that, the Father lifts us. We are lifted through Christ's incarnation into the heavenly places that we might, through the mystery that is the Son of God incarnate, partake of the eternal life that is in the Godhead. You see, it is by that incarnation that we receive eternal life. And that eternal life flows from God himself. It is an eternal life that has been given to the Son, and through the Son, the Son gives it to whom he pleases. And it pleases him to give it to all of us who are united to him. Chrysostom continues, Bethlehem this day resembles heaven. Hearing from the stars the singing of angelic voices, and in place of the sun, enfolds within itself on every side the sun of justice. Ask not how, for where God wills, the order of nature yields. For he willed, he had the power, he descended, he redeemed. All things yielded in obedience to God. This day he who is born this day he who is, is born. And he who is, becomes what he was not. For when he was God, he became man. Yet not departing from the Godhead that is his, nor yet by any loss of divinity became he man, nor through increase became he God from man. But being the word, he became flesh. His nature because of impassibility remaining unchanged. And so here are these beautiful words of Chrysostom. He says, he descended and he redeemed. And his words again, he who is becomes what he was not. The son becoming man loses nothing of his divinity. And he departs not from that very divine nature by taking on flesh, but instead takes up flesh into his divinity. He does not somehow make a man God, but he is God, but is God made man with no loss of godhood. Jesus is God made man. He remains fully divine and yet becomes fully man. The mystery is manifest here. How can the creator become a part of his own creation? without the loss of being the creator. We cannot grasp, we cannot understand, but yet we behold the mystery. We stand in awe of that mystery. We can adore the mystery without understanding. 
Because the mystery is the truth. The mystery is the reality. Chrysostom once more, And so the kings have come, and they have seen the heavenly king that has come upon the earth, not bringing with him angels, nor archangels, nor thrones, nor dominations, nor powers, nor principalities, but treading a new and solitary path, he has come forth from a spotless womb. Since this heavenly birth cannot be described, neither does his coming amongst us in these days permit of too curious scrutiny. Though I know that a virgin that day gave birth, and I believe that God was begotten before all time, yet the manner of this generation I have learned to venerate in silence. And I accept that this is not to be probed too curiously with wordy speech. For with God, we look not for the order of nature, but rest our faith in the power of him who works. Again, Chrysostom reminds us of the mystery of our faith, that the incarnation is truly a mystery that we will never grasp in our mortal lives. We know that God is always, and yet the Son has come into time as a baby, born of a virgin. What can we make of this strange thing, this strange event? As Chrysostom said, he sits in silence with veneration. And likewise, we can only sit in silence and ponder that mystery as well. And that is as it should be. The incarnation is a wondrous thing. It is a wondrous mystery. It cannot be comprehended. We ponder and are brought to wonder at the reality of the God of creation uniting himself to our broken humanity. He comes to be one of us. He becomes that which he is not. And so we adore him in silence because the mystery is too great for us. All mouths are stopped when they draw their attention to the reality of the God-man. We once more are silenced as we dwell upon this truth. Adoration is the only appropriate response to God becoming man. What shall I say to you, Chrysostom says? What shall I tell you? I behold a mother who is brought forth. I see a child come to this light by birth. The manner of his conception I cannot comprehend. Nature here rested while the will of God labored. Oh, ineffable grace, the only begotten who is before all ages, who cannot be touched or be perceived, who is simple without body, has now put on my body that is visible, that is liable to corruption. For what reason? That coming amongst us, he may teach us in teaching, lead us by the hand to the things that men cannot see. For since men believe that the eyes are more trustworthy than the ears, they doubt of that which they do not see. And so he is deigned to show himself in bodily presence that he may remove all doubt. The God of the universe has put on my body. Why would a God do something so audacious? For is it not audacious? Gods do not take on mortal flesh for the sake of mortals, do they? No, they don't. But the one true God does do this. The gods of the pantheons, they don't care about us 
mortal men enough to leave their abode. But the God of creation comes down and does so. For it is out of an overflow of the love that is God that creation flows. And it is out of that same overflow of love that redemption comes to us mere mortals. We are undeserving of such great compassion, I say. And yet, our God is compassionate. He is merciful towards us who are weak. He takes on the visible and the corruptible that it might become incorruptible. He takes this mortal frame that immortality might reign in us by faith. We trust those grand promises of God. We trust the grand promises of the God of the Jews, the one God who is the God of all. And the Old Testament, throughout it, testifies. It testifies to this God's desire to redeem and renew, to free from bondage his creation. That creation has been subjected to decay, that he might lift out, that he might lift it out of the very decay into light and light and salvation. And how does he do such a thing? Chrysostom continues, Christ, finding the holy body and soul of the virgin, builds for himself a living temple. And as he had willed, formed there a man from the virgin. And putting him on, that day came forth unashamed of the lowliness of our nature. For it was to him no lowering to put on what he himself had made. Let the handiwork be forever glorified, which became the cloak of its own creator. For as in the first creation of flesh, man could not be made before the clay had come into his hand. So neither could this corruptible body be glorified until it had first become the garment of its maker. What shall I say and how shall I describe this birth to you? For this wonder fills me with astonishment. The ancient of days has become an infant. He who sits upon the sublime and heavenly throne now lies in a manger. And he who cannot be touched, who is simple without complexity and incorporeal, now lies subject to the hands of men. He who has broken the bonds of sinners is now bound by an infant's spans. But he has decreed that ignominy shall become honor, infamy be clothed with glory, and total humiliation the measure of his goodness. For this he assumed my body that I may become capable of his word. Taking my flesh, he gives me his spirit. And so bestowing, and so he bestowing, and I receiving, he prepares for me the treasure of life. He takes my flesh to sanctify me. He gives me his spirit that he may save me. And here Chrysostom carries us over and over and over into that reality of God taking on flesh. In the incarnation, Jesus takes my humanity, he takes your humanity, he takes our flesh that he might sanctify us. And he gives me his spirit that he may save me. This God of creation desires us. He desires to lay hold of us, to set us apart from everything else in creation. And in order to do that, he takes our flesh for his own. He takes on our flesh for us. The invisible God makes himself visible, not in some vision, 
but in a physical, earthly humanity. That which was once clay made alive is now indwelt with the very one who originally molded it and gave it life, Chrysostom has pointed out to us. He does this to set us apart from all other things. In doing that, he makes himself liable to the hands of sinful men. In making himself liable to the hands of sinful men, he can break the bonds of sinners. He subjects himself to infants' bands that he might break the bonds of sinners, Chrysostom has told us. He wants to set us aside as a people for himself to save us from what we had become when we went our own ways. He brings us back to himself by becoming one of us. He makes us holy ones by becoming one with us, by being God with us, by being Emmanuel. That is what Jesus has done, and all of this is to drive us toward rejoicing, toward adoration, toward praise and love. So Chrysostom finishes, Come then, let us observe the feast. Truly wondrous is the whole chronicle of the nativity. For this day the ancient slavery is ended. The devil confounded the demons, take to flight, the power of death is broken, and paradise is unlocked. The curse is taken away, sin is removed from us, error driven out. Truth has been brought back. The speech of kindliness diffused and spreads on every side. A heavenly way of life has been implanted on the earth. Angels communicate with men without fear, and men now hold speech with the angels. Why is this? Because God is now on earth, and man in heaven. On every side all things commingle. He became flesh. He did not become God. He was God. Wherefore he became flesh, so that he whom heaven did not contain a manger would this day receive. He was placed in a manger so that he, by whom all things are nourished, may receive an infant's food from his virgin mother. And so the father of all ages, in his son as an infant at the breast, nestles in the virginal arms, that the magi may more easily see him. Since this day the magi too have come and made a beginning of withstanding tyranny, and the heavens give glory as the Lord is revealed by a star. You hear Chrysostom here beginning to mingle and bring together both the epiphany and the birth. For that's not unusual for a father of the East. For a long time they brought together Christmas Day and the epiphany and celebrated them as one event. For in Christ being born here on earth, it means redemption for the whole world. It means drawing the Gentiles from the farthest parts of the earth, from the four corners of the earth. That is what the Magi represent here. They are the Gentiles coming who have heard of Jesus streaming into Jerusalem and from Jerusalem into Bethlehem to behold this Son of God, this one who was laid in a manger that heaven could not contain, but yet a manger did receive. This Lord of all creation, living as a little child, being a little child, being an infant utterly dependent upon his mother and his adopted father, this little infant, the son of creation, who could bring all things to a stop, 
is yet a cooing baby. Beginning to grow toward manhood from the first moment of birth. And here the Magi come and they see and they behold the glorious nature of God made man. The glorious man of the one who has always been God. And he has been revealed to all of us. And so to him then who out of confusion has wrought a clear path to Christ, to the Father, and to the Holy Spirit, we offer all praise now and forever. Amen. And we echo those same words of Chrysostom that is now that we look to Jesus. For he brings us out of confusion. He puts us onto a clear path. And so we praise him. We rejoice. We adore. We meditate. We rest in faith upon him who is God, who has become flesh for us and tabernacles with us that we might see his glory. And so to him then, who out of confusion has wrought a clear path to Christ, to the Father and to the Holy Spirit, we offer all praise now and forever. Amen.